there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do try our hardest to find the best information we can. I got lots of information on mine this week. Oh, good. Yeah. You ready for this info dump? Yeah. I'm glad you're ready for it because it's my turn to go first this week. And this week I'm talking about the greater sage grouse. Okay. Do you know what a grouse is? Bird. It is a bird. (laughs) That's right. That's all I got, though. Okay. (laughs) And this species was submitted by Matthew Johnston via email. Thank you, Matthew. And I wanted to cover this animal now because it's getting close to the springtime, which is when things really start popping off for this bird. Okay. Yeah. So when you start getting into, like, end of February, early March, this is when things really get dramatic for this bird. So I wanted to kind of prep people for the oncoming season. Mm. Yeah. I'm getting my information from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, the National Audubon Society, the American Bird Conservancy, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Awesome. Yeah. There's lots of information available out there about these guys. They're well-studied, which made made my job quite easy this week. Yeah. Love to see it. (laughs) So for people like us who are unfamiliar with this bird because it does not live where we do, here's a quick little primer on what they are. Males are up to 30 inches long and about 7 pounds, and females are considerably smaller. They're only up to 23 inches long and 4 pounds, which is roughly one chicken. Oh, okay. We're back to this. (laughs) (laughs) It's an incredibly apt system of measurement for this bird. They're very analogous to chickens, in fact. Oh, finally. Yes. So just to provide a little bit of a basic description, they are a squat, ground-dwelling bird with short, stumpy beaks. The United States Fish and Wildlife Service website describes them as having, and this is a quote from the government, a chunky, round body, which that's pleasant that's so nice i like it when the government calls things chunky that's fun they're mostly brown but males have this puffy white feather boa around their chest and neck that kind of like comes up and like frames their head it looks to me like megamind oh (laughs) you know how megamind has that like tall vampire collar that goes around it kind of looks like that to me (laughs) and then underneath the puffy white chest feathers are these two yellow Guler sacks, which normally you can't see, okay, but they can become inflated like balloons to become super visible. So normally you can't see them, but sometimes you can super see them. Are these like outside the body? Yeah, yeah, it's like a throat sack. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll explain that in a little bit. So just keep that in your pocket for later. Uh, these birds are found only in the northwestern. United States and parts of Canada, especially Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, and Oregon. Hmm. And then within that range, they can be found exclusively in this type of biome called sagebrush plains. Do you know what that is? No. So sagebrush, to explain what that is, because it's important to understand this bird, sagebrush is the name for 18 different species of plants in the genus Artemisia. They are short bushes with typically light green leaves that really specialize in surviving in dry conditions by retaining a lot of moisture. Mm. So they can stay green even throughout the very, very dry cold winter. This makes them a crucial food source and shelter source for wildlife that lives in these really arid, flat grasslands of the American West. 
Uh, sage grouse actually depend completely on sagebrush to survive because it makes up most of their diet year round. And then being short ground dwelling birds, they also use it as shelter because hmm. you know, they can't hide in treetops and stuff. So they have to hide under the sagebrush. Because hmm. there's no treetops around for them to hide oh, in. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, can they not fly? They can <laughs> okay. fly. They're not amazing okay. at it, but they but there's no trees around for them to hide in. I see. So they have they rely on the sagebrush for that. These birds in particular are like obligate sagebrush dwellers. Like they can only live in sagebrush plains. Hmm. They belong to the taxonomic family Phasianidae, which is the same family as pheasants, peacocks, chickens and turkeys so they are a gallinaceous bird which goes back to the turkey episode from a few months ago okay so to get into my ratings for this bird if this is your first time listening to this podcast effectiveness for us means physical adaptations how well is this animal adapted physically to thrive i'm giving them a six out of ten it's not their fault (laughs) (laughs) it's not their fault but the thing is they're very specialized okay and as with any sort of specialist, this can really hinder their adaptability. Yeah. Right? Unless... When you have an animal that's really specced heavily into a very specific set of circumstances, yeah, it can be difficult for them when things change. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, unless that specialty is the bottom of the ocean or <laughs> extremely polluted water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if your specialty is polluted water, <laughs> things are looking up for you. <laughs> Not this one, though. So, greater sage grouse eat mostly sagebrush. They eat other stuff, too, but it is mostly sagebrush that they eat. Actually, during the winter, they only eat sagebrush because Mm. it's the only thing that is still, like, green during the Mm. winter. So, it kind of gets them through the winter. And here's why. So most types of grouse and similar birds that forage on the ground have this muscular organ called a gizzard that Mm. grinds down hard food. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with gizzards? Yeah, with chickens and turkeys, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever eaten gizzard? I think so. Yeah? Do you like it? I don't remember. It's usually prepared like as a part of the gravy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the gizzard is meant for like grinding down food. So Mm -hmm. this lets ground dwelling birds eat tough things like seeds and grains. However, the greater sage grouse does not have a muscular gizzard. So they can't grind down tough food. This means that they're really limited in what they can eat only to like soft plant tissue. Mm -hmm. So leaves, basically, like leaves, grasses, things like that. Um, They can only eat things that are kind of soft. Now, the sagebrush is so resistant to these cold, dry conditions that it still has plenty of leaves for the sage grouse to eat, even through the winter. Mm. So as long as there's plenty of sagebrush, the sage grouse will do just fine. Also, like I mentioned earlier, they can fly. They don't travel large migratory distances like some other birds do because they're so dependent on this very specific type of ecosystem, right? Uh They can't leave too far. Like, they'll kind of go from, like, patch to patch seasonally based on, like, what's most available at that time. But you're not going to see them, you know, crossing the continent like some other birds do. They have these really short wings that are fine for small bursts of fast flight, but they cannot sustain soaring at all. It's It would be like trying to strap a basketball to, like, a drone. Like, <laughs> they're not aerodynamic birds. <laughs> 
One direction and down. (laughs) (laughs) You can go down at varying angles. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so they they can kind of fly, but not amazing. So the reason I gave them a six is that they're really dependent on a very specific ecosystem. And that land is being developed or converted into agricultural use. So they have lost a lot of potential habitat and they don't have a ton of other options. Mm -hmm. Um, But another thing I, I deducted for is that they really don't have a lot of ways of defending themselves you know like turkeys have like that big spur behind their feet you know and and these things just get eaten by a lot of stuff like (laughs) like these this the greater sage grouse is eaten by so many things like coyotes badgers hawks eagles bobcats anything big enough to grab them basically can they run fast at least not like super fast but they're yeah they can run pretty good (laughs) that's kind of all they've got but also they nest on the ground yeah like that's where everything dangerous lives you know like we talked about turkeys how turkeys roost in the trees to avoid predators they don't have that option they can't Mm -hmm. roost in a tree so they're kind of stuck on the ground well yeah not ideal. Anyway, for ingenuity, which for us is behavioral adaptations, ways that the animal does things to get an advantage or get by in the world, I'm giving the greater sage grouse an 8 out of 10 for ingenuity. So I feel like it's making up for some stuff here. They have some interesting things that they do. First of all, the thing that the greater sage grouse is most well known for is its theatrical courtship display oh boy this is like birds are so good at this like so many of the most like wild incredible courtship displays are always from birds the greater sage grouse their display is theatrical in the sense that they perform on a stage for an audience this is not a one-on-one like a like i'm performing for you to try to get you to like me so rather than court each female individually male sage grouses gather in very specific traditional courtship areas called leks have you ever heard of a lek no it's it's spelled l-e-k oh yeah so they gather at a lek and by the way it's the same lek every year they have like a certain, a very specific little area that they all congregate to. So they all come together. I think it's kind of like the vendor hall at a convention. Mm. Like every year they have like an annual sage grouse con and uh, all the males basically put together a vendor hall where the males are all performing and competing against each other for the attention of the females that have gathered to watch okay so each male kind of has his own little stage area like his little vendor table and he puts on his best strutting display and this strutting display is a sight to behold so he fans his tail feathers out like a peacock and remember i said earlier that they have kind of pointy looking tail feathers so it ends up kind of looking like rays from like a dark sun i'm imagining like a palmetto leaf or something yes it looks exactly like that okay yeah so very so makes him look very big and attention grabbing and then he gulps in air to inflate those big yellow throat sacks um and it looks quite silly when they're inflated (laughs) it looks like something but anyway he gulps in air to inflate the sacks and then he like swishes his chest feathers around with his wings like kind of like floofs them up with his wings which makes like a swishy swishy sound Mm -hmm. and then he forces the air out of the sacks very quickly to like pop them and it makes this like 
whoop, 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 whoop kind of sound okay. like and like this pop 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 sound i'll have to like edit in a, what it actually sounds like and not just my weird impression of it all right but it does not sound like a sound you would think a bird would make it's very strange mm-hmm. the males are all doing this to compete for like a spotlight position there's like a position in the middle that's like the dominant position so everyone all the males are trying to basically like force each other out of the central spotlight position once females start to choose a mate like once one female is like okay i choose this guy all of the other females will then start choosing the same guy like the one guy gets it's like a winner take all sort of thing where Mm -hmm. you know once the females start to pick like the winner he gets all of the females you get like this one giga chad sage grouse that's like (laughs) every single female and then the other ones don't get any they don't get to meet with anybody that year huh it's weird right (laughs) that seems like that kind of limits their genetic variability right like if everybody's mating with the same male right seems weird doesn't it it does Huh. Yeah. And, and everyone's just cool with it after that. They're just like, ah, oh, we lost. Yeah. All right. We'll go home. Better next year. Yeah. See you next time, basically. <laughs> so, very interesting sort of ritual that they do. And then, after the singles mixer is over, uh, females go back to their nests and there is no second date. The males never interact with the females again. Okay. <laughs> they do not assist with the chicks or the eggs or anything. So, mm. Boo! (laughs) Tomato, tomato. (laughs) Their nests are on the ground, like I said earlier, under dense sagebrush coverage that hides them and protects them from predators. But not perfectly. Like, their nests are still preyed upon by things like coyotes, squirrels, badgers, ravens. Like, Mm. anything will come by and grab either the eggs or the young after they've hatched. Do sagebrushes have thorns or anything? Or... You know, I don't think they have thorns. Okay. It's just kind of a thick, like a dense sort of canopy of leaves that is hopefully hiding them Mm. by like masking their scent and also like visually hiding them. Okay. It's not perfect though. It still happens. Females do though seem to leave portions of the nest unlined. Uh, Because they usually line the nest with, like, you know, leaves and twigs and feathers and stuff like that. But it seems like she leaves exit paths that are unlined so Mm. that she can quickly, if something is attacking the nest, she can get out real fast. Which is a cool idea. Got a little escape hatch just in case. I just think that being on the ground is a really vulnerable place to put your nest. Because predators don't have to be able to climb the tree to get your eggs and babies, right? right? It just seems like... Do a better spot. <laughs> well, just I wonder, given what what's available, what would be better? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, I guess. <laughs> like, are there cactuses in this part? No, no. no. The sagebrush is probably the tallest plant around. Yeah. Like, these are all these really, like, I mean grassland. There is not a tree to be seen. Okay. Well. Yeah. This is like those places where they say you can watch your dog run away for a week. Oh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> you never heard that? No. Yeah, it's like they're saying, like, you watch, like, when your dog runs away, you could watch him for a week. I wouldn't. I'd be like five minutes and like, well, there she goes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <sighs> so for aesthetics for the greater sage grouse, I'm giving them an eight out of ten. 
they look very impressive, especially the males. They they look really, really cool. However, I did have to deduct a couple points because as we have seen from their relatives, the peacocks and the pheasants, we can do better in the costume department. Mm. So whereas they are really putting in the work in the choreography, I think they could maybe do a little more with the costuming. You know, we've seen like peacocks and pheasants and things that have brilliant rainbows of colors and Uh stuff in their feathers and not so much for the sage grouse. But who has the best singing voice? Well, I guess that depends on how you feel about the peacock sounds. (laughs) I think they're very funny. (laughs) Haunting. Haunting. Yes. It's ghoulish, isn't it? (laughs) Especially if you're not expecting it. So yeah, those are my ratings for the greater sage grouse. To wrap things up, their conservation status is near threatened. But the important thing is that sage-grouse are an indicator species. Mm. So they act kind of like an ecological barometer. They kind of tell researchers how healthy the entire sagebrush ecosystem is. So if your sage-grouse population is thriving, you can usually deduce that the rest of the ecosystem is doing pretty well, too. Like the rest of the plants and the animals and everything that keeps, you know, the sage-grouse population afloat, they're all probably doing good, too. And since they all congregate in the same spot every year, it's kind of easy to count them right like they're all kind of rounding themselves up for you and you can just look at how many come to the lek at the in the spring there's some scientists dressed up as like sage brushes with binoculars (laughs) (laughs) i thought you were gonna say that they dress up as sage grouse it's very large like big bird size sage grouse Like, how far would they have to take that? Would they have to, like, do the dance? Uh Uh-oh, all the female birds chose a scientist. Oh, no. (laughs) Population devastated. (laughs) They're into brainy guys, I guess. Um, But then, like I said, you know, since they are so heavily dependent on very specific ecological conditions, habitat loss really hurts them. Um, Mm. And they have lost over half of their historic range. Um, as the land that they depend on is being converted into agricultural use or developed or built on, they're losing a lot of that sagebrush. There is actually a great video by Vox that's titled This Goofy Bird Versus the Fossil Fuel Industry mm. uh, that better explains a lot of the politics behind sage grouse conservation. You know, like a lot of that land is used for like oil drilling and things like that. So the most interesting sort of little tidbit that I came across completely by accident and by surprise I'll tell you what the headline is later because it's it grabbed my attention something fierce. Mm. But the story goes, in 2015, a Utah representative attached a provision to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is an annual military spending bill. And this provision that he tacked on there said that the greater sage grouse would not be allowed to be added to the list of species protected by the Endangered Species Act for at least 10 years okay. after this bill was passed. So he slapped that on there that said, okay, well, we can't make this bird an endangered species. If you, like me, were wondering, what does the greater sage grouse's endangered species status have to do with the military budget? Uh-huh. Uh, his reasoning was based on a 2015 report from the Army saying that one of the greater sage grouse's only populations in Washington was at the Yakima Training Center. Mm. This means that if the bird was legally protected, they'd have to restrict some of some, not all, some of the activity at one military training center okay. to uh, avoid disturbing or harming the sage grouse, like shutting down some 
of their gun ranges during the spring. <laughs> Not all of them. Okay. <laughs> They'd have to shut down some of their gun ranges for a few months. So, <laughs> basically, his the reason he had nothing to do with whether or not the sage grouse deserved or needed protection, the reasoning was it would inconvenience the military slightly, <laughs> so the entire species can't be protected. Wow. Yeah, absolute maniac behavior. <laughs> a very large hammer for a very small nail. Yes! <laughs> Just ridiculous, because this would apply to the entire species across the entire country. And his concern was over one military training center being slightly inconvenienced for parts of the year. Absolutely absurd. I'm guessing, did that go through? No, it didn't. Uh, The provision was ultimately removed from the NDAA, resulting in the startling headline that brought me to this rabbit hole. The headline said, Audubon, the sage grouse is not a threat to America's military. (laughs) (laughs) So after having done all this research, I see that headline, and I'm thinking like some sort of sage grouse domestic terrorism. Are they doing an espionage? Are we suspecting sage grouse of participating in spy behavior it evoked a very uh, exciting mental image that huh. it unfortunately was much more boring and frustrating than what i imagined someone had to write a report about that <laughs> it was you can like the quotes that i read from like the autobahn people and like everybody who basically participated in getting this provision removed from the bill you could hear frustration just like dripping even through just like written word they were like we can't believe we have to say this but no the greater sage grouse is not a threat to the military okay. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually the provision failed and thankfully so but the sage grouse still hasn't been added to the endangered species act i think that's because of how widespread their range is like mm. the idea is that they have a lot of there are a lot of different places where they live even though it's less than it was before uh they're still kind of on that near threatened and that's purely a united states yes right? yeah the endangered species act that's not the iucn red right. list that's right. not on there it's just they're not given any special legal protections mm. in the United States yet. Just, I thought that was a an interesting little story. Yeah, no threat. But we're watching. But we're watching them. <laughs> <laughs> we got our eye on you, Sage Grouses. We know what you're about. <laughs> I guess they wouldn't mind if they're on a no-fly list, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so upset I didn't put that in my notes. I'm so devastated that you beat me to that joke. How dare you? Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the MaxFun Network, and then we'll get to your animal. Since the dawn of time, man has dreamed of bringing life back from the dead. From Orpheus and Eurydice to Frankenstein's monster, resurrection has long been merely the stuff of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. Until now. Actually, we still can't bring people back from the dead. That would be crazy, but the Dead Pilot Society podcast has found a way to resurrect great dead comedy pilots from Hollywood's finest writers. Every month, Dead Pilot Society brings you a reading of a comedy pilot that was sold and developed but never produced, performed by the funniest actors from film and television. How does Dead Pilot Society achieve this miracle? The answer can only be found at MaximumFun.org. Hello, dreamers. This is Evelyn Denton, CEO of the only world-class, fully immersive theme resort, Steeplechase. 
You know, I've been seeing more and more reports on the blogs that our beloved park simply isn't safe anymore. Mur murdered them? I'm gonna wreck it. They say they got mugged by brigands in the fantasy kingdom of Ephemera, or hijacked by space pirates in Infinitum. I mean, I could have a knife. My papa said that I needed to do a crime. Friends, I'm here to reassure you that it's all part of the show. These criminals were really just overzealous staff trying to make things a little more magical for our guests. We're just as safe as we've always been. This isn't a county fair, dreamers. This is Steeplechase. The Adventure Zone. Every Thursday at MaximumFun.org. So, my love, what animal do you have for us this week? This week, I'm bringing a little animal. A little guy? <laughs> That uh, in some ways, you know, keeps a, a big iron on its hip. <gasps> <laughs> this is, of course, the pistol shrimp. I love it. Yeah. I'm so excited. And that is a family called Alfiade. And this was submitted by Liz M. and Hisha P. Thank you. Thank you both. I really like this animal, so thank you. And I'll be pulling information from a couple different places. Of course, Animal Diversity Web. And a couple of papers, uh, Morphological Phylogeny of Alphaeid Shrimps by Anker et al., posted in Evolution in 2006, as well as Unveiling the Physical Mechanism Behind Pistol Shrimp Cavitation by Cocovenus et al. in Scientific Reports 2017. And then finally, the paper titled The Acoustics of the Snapping Shrimp, Synalpheus Parniomeris in Kaneohe Bay by Alan Banks in the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America in 1998. Excellent. Lots of papers on this one. Okay. And of course, we're talking about a whole family of shrimp. Right. So some things I'm talking about are kind of generalized across that family and some things are more specific. Okay. So a shrimp. A shrimp. This, uh, this is in that group known as, you know, true shrimp. Mm, true <laughs> shrimp. <laughs> You gotta put your pinky up when you say that. <laughs> so they are crustaceans, decapods. Decapod means ten legs or limbs. Feet, I think. Feet. I think it's feet. Yes. Yeah, it's probably feet because sometimes they do have other limbs that exceed that ten number. Oh, I <laughs> so see. Specifically, the feet. Ten feet. Yes. <laughs> they they are... need ten shoes. <laughs> they are small uh, from the tail to their rostrum, so the nose bit. They are only three to five and a half centimeters long. Oh. Oh, they're so little. 1.2 to 2.2 inches. It's like a fraction of a chicken. <laughs> like the toe of a chicken. <laughs> Most live in marine, shallow, tropical, and subtropical waters around the world, but others can be found in colder waters, fresh water, mangroves, estuaries, or even the deep sea. Wow. Yeah. They got all their aquatic bases covered. Right. For effectiveness. Uh-huh. I'm going to give a full 10 out of 10 on this one. Okay. The biggest thing is their claw. Yes. Um, singular claw. Just they, one? They have two claws, but only one of them is impressive at a time. This is kind of reminding me of a, what do you call them? A fiddler crab? A little bit, How yeah. they have like one big claw and then yeah. one minor claw. <laughs> so one of their claws will be uh, modified. Since so it's much larger, it's about half the length of its total body. Um, and it's it's modified such that the pincer includes like a plunger apparatus in it. A plunger. Such that when it opens, there's a cavity of water inside that bottom part of its claw. And then when it closes, the plunger pushes into that cavity, pushing water out. It's like making a vacuum? Is that what it's doing? It's not a vacuum. It's just it's basically shooting water when it closes its claw. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just pushing the water away yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. 
but because of a reservoir that gets filled by the the top claw when it closes. I see. Interesting. Yeah. As you may have heard in the citations, um, this comes into play with cavitation bubbles. Yes. Please so, tell me about cavitation bubbles. Yes. So first of all, light physics lesson. I need this so bad. I don't know anything about physics. <laughs> so first off, um, under a given pressure, water has predictable temperatures at which the state of matter changes, right? So water can go from a solid, ice, to a liquid, and then to a gas, water vapor. Um, under normal pressure, so like atmospheric pressure, like in our house, it turns to ice at zero degrees Celsius, and it turns into water vapor at 100 degrees Celsius. Okay. That's the boiling point. So uh -huh. that's what happens when water is boiling. It is changing from a liquid to a gas. Um, now, an increase in pressure will increase those temperatures. So if you increase the pressure that that water is in, that means the boiling point is now higher. And so is the, the freezing point. Oh, interesting. And the inverse is true as well. If you decrease pressure, that moves those temperatures in the other direction. Okay. Uh, this is how pressure cookers work, by the way. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it lets you get a higher temperature before the water starts to try to turn into gas. Is this how our instant pot works? Yes, Oh, it is. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, because what happens with a phase change, if you had a graph on your x-axis of heat being increased and your y-axis is temperature, mm -hmm. you notice, say you start with ice that is at like negative 30 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. As you start adding heat, the temperature of that ice starts increasing. Okay. But once it reaches zero degrees Celsius, that line flatlines. Oh, really? Yes. Because it takes energy to not only increase temperature, but to change the state of matter. Oh. Yes. So while it's doing that transition from ice to water... That's where all that heat is going, and it's staying at zero degrees Celsius. So it's losing the heat to the reaction. Like, the heat is being, like, used up to get the water from ice to right. liquid. This is called latent heat. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that heat is going towards ch changing the state of matter from solid to liquid. And then once all of that water is now liquid water, then the temperature starts increasing again. And that's when it reaches 100 degrees Celsius under normal pressure. You see the same thing. It flatlines while it starts to boil and turns into water vapor. And then you, you would see the same thing if you were able to then apply that heat to the water vapor. But usually in, you know, in a kitchen setting, that water vapor has flown off somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's got its own plan. Yeah. Another interesting way to observe this in everyday life is, is like with an aerosol can. Uh, so an aerosol can has a liquid component that when you open it, it's reducing the pressure, letting that liquid turn into a gas. But doing that pulls in heat from the surroundings. So when you use an aerosol can, you'll notice the can gets cold. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It does. Yes. yes. So that's that's the idea, that there needs to be heat transfer for a, a, a phase change. Okay. So, sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> so here's what happens with the pistol shrimp yes. back, back from our physics lesson when the pistol shrimp snaps its claw shut it moves that water like as a little you can imagine as a little jet stream it, uh -huh. it moves it so quickly that the static pressure of that water that's moving drops dramatically really this is known as Bernoulli's principle so that water mm -hmm. the pressure has dropped way low sure and now all of a sudden the temperature that that water is at is now within that water vapor range Oh, it's like instant yes. vaporization. Yes. So it creates a bubble of water vapor. Huh. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Like mm-hmm. creating a bubble where there was not a bubble there before. <laughs> <laughs> it's still, you know, H2O, uh-huh. but now that little bit of it has been phase changed into a gas. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Huh. So back to that heat component, that kind of phase change requires heat to right. take place. So it's pulling in heat from the surrounding water to do that. And then that static pressure eventually equalizes as it moves away from the claw, right? So that brings the pressure back to normal. And that causes the bubble to quickly phase change back into a liquid. And that's when the bubble collapses. Oh, because yeah. it's it's pushed all the water aside. Or no, it hasn't pushed the water aside. It basically, it's... it slows down. So then this pressure returns back to normal. And now that temperature is within its water phase. Okay. So now it, it wants to go back into the liquid phase. So it collap- the bubble collapses in on itself to do it. When it does that, it releases energy in a couple different forms. It's releasing heat because it's going you know, from a gas to a liquid. It's releasing a shock wave in the form of like acoustic energy and also light. Mm. Oh, light. Yes. Really? Yes. Now that shock wave, that's what the shrimp is using. Because that shock wave they use when when a prey is close enough and they do that, mm-hmm. that shock wave will stun or kill the things that they're eating. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So the theoretical temperature of what happens there when the bubble collapses is around 5,000 degrees Celsius. <laughs> 5,000? So, we're, you know, we're talking about surface of the sun type temperatures. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> So then they're cooking it, too. <laughs> well, I, I had a hard time finding information about that because it, it's, it's a theoretical thing. So sure. based on the amount of energy being released over that amount of time, th- this would be the theoretical temperature involved here. Right. Oh, that's true because it is a very, very short amount of time. It's so less like, than a millisecond. So like if you suddenly teleported <laughs> to the surface of the sun and back in less than a millisecond. Yeah. So now when they do this, when that cavitation bubble collapses it also causes an audible like pop in the water Mm, yeah i've heard of this yes yeah i've heard that it makes a little like yeah so you can hear it if you're underwater and somewhat nearby these things and when you're by a a big group of them they can cause some problems for sound recording equipment (laughs) (laughs) and that's because the sound level is in the neighborhood of 190 decibels at a meter away and sound travels easier underwater too doesn't it Yes, because the particles are closer to each other right. than, than they are in air. So to compare that to something above water in air, I used the NOAA website to convert that to something equivalent to 164 decibels above air, uh, which is similar to a gunshot. Okay, so the pistol ship <laughs> name is yes. appropriate then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and according to the CDC, anything over 120 decibels can cause immediate hearing damage. In oh, humans. no. Yeah. But I'm not able to find any indication this sound can actually harm human hearing. Okay. I'm thinking maybe because when the CDC is talking about it, when they say immediately, they don't. They probably aren't talking about the magnitude of half of a millisecond. Right. Because even, yeah. even a gunshot is around, I think, three to five milliseconds. Okay. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But also, I would imagine it, it's something that's happening at a very, very tiny little scale. Mm-hmm. So I'd imagine you have to be pretty close to it to... For it to really, like, impact your hearing. I mean, a meter is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, but how often are humans within a meter of these things? And, like, like in the water with them? So I've, I've seen some anecdotal stories of them being caught in, like, nets and things. Or by scuba divers. That sort of thing. So, 
Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure what the the actual harm could be to a human. Yeah. And also the the cavitation bubble itself doesn't seem to be capable of harming a human. Sure. We'll just be thankful that we're the size that we are. <laughs> now, that kind of sound intensity is up there with sperm and beluga whales as oh. some of the loudest creatures in the ocean. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm. So another th- cool thing about their claws is if they lose that modified claw, mm-hmm. the remaining claw will then turn into that modified claw. No way. Yes. Oh, they've got a backup. <laughs> and then the lost claw will then regrow back as the lesser of the two claws. So they flip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you can find that big claw on either side of these shrimp. That's in, They've got like an offhand. Yeah. Why don't they just dual wield then? <laughs> you you could. You have the capability. Yeah. It's probably a gain versus cost thing going That's on. That's true. There. It's probably energetically costly yeah. to have two big giant mm-hmm. cannons. So that's that's the idea of the pistol part of their name. So they'll they'll generate that cavitation bubble that causes a big shockwave onto whatever is close to it, mm-hmm. um, stunning and killing it. Cavitation bubbles are a big topic in fluid dynamics. This happens all the time, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) With a good example are boat propellers. A boat propeller, you know, spun fast enough does the same thing where the water that is flowing over the boat propeller is accelerated such that, you know, again, that pressure drops, causing the bubble. And then as it slows down, that bubble collapses on itself. But here's the thing. The pistol shrimp is doing that like once right? yeah one bubble yeah every once in a while but with a propeller type situation that's lots of bubbles over a long time right so what happens is that eventually causes damage to the propeller oh does a it little pitted damage in the metal oh yeah oh i guess so uh-huh. i and i'd imagine maybe that has to do with the reason why noise pollution is such a big problem mm. um in the ocean with how noisy the boat propellers are because we watched that documentary about the pot of whales that were having a hard time finding each other because mm-hmm. they couldn't hear over the sound of the boat propellers. Maybe, yeah. So so cavitation is generally something that is to be avoided mm-hmm. because it will damage whatever the surface is that it's happening well, on. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, with the mantis shrimp we talked about a little way back, this happens with them, too. When they strike something with their hammer, a little cavitation bubble is formed at that point. But for them, it was like a punch. Right. It's it's two things like colliding with each other. Uh-huh. And this is more of like... Just accelerating the water very quickly. Mm-hmm. But with the mantis shrimp, it's kind of an unwanted side effect because that cavitation bubble also damages them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but shrimp and crabs molt. So, you know, they're replacing the part of their body that gets damaged. Oh, that's that. true. So if they get a couple of dents and scratches, right. it's okay because they're going to get a new coat every right. once in a while. Whereas with something like a propeller or the inside of some fluid system, that damage is going to just you know, get more and more worse Yeah, <laughs> where it has to be replaced or some sort of mechanical failure happens. I suppose that's our own form of molting, <laughs> replacing pieces. Yeah. Wait, the shrimp of Theseus. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> At what point is it a new shrimp? Oh, man. <laughs> so that wraps up effectiveness. Moving on to ingenuity. I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Okay. This... That's good for a shrimp. Yes. And that's because... Some species of one genus, Synalpheus, has been observed to demonstrate eusocial behavior. Eusocial is an interesting word. Yes. Tell me about eusocial. So I'm getting this information from an article titled Eusociality in a Coral Reef Shrimp by Duffy in the Nature Journal in 1996. 
And it mentions the kind of requirements for something to be considered eusocial is overlapping generations, reproductive division of labor, and cooperative care of young. Oh. So other examples of animals that have this behavior are honeybees, mm-hmm. ants, naked mole rats. Yeah. <laughs> Which I yeah. think you touched on. Well, yeah, we've um, had an episode on them before. Yes. Um, guest Benjamin Lancer mm-hmm. came on and talked about the sort of social hierarchy of naked mole rats. They have mm-hmm. like a queen and a system that right. is, like you mentioned, kind of like built around the queen. Yes. The Merriam-Webster definition of eusocial is living in a cooperative group in which usually one female and several males are reproductively active and the non-breeding individuals care for the young or protect and provide for the group. I've never heard of a shrimp doing this. Yes, that's right. These are only sh- not only the only shrimp, but the only aquatic animals. Really? Yes, that huh. demonstrate this behavior. Wow. How'd they get it figured out? <laughs> so is it is it kind of like a bee, how they have like a hive and a colony inside of mm-hmm. there? Because I feel like usually with eusocial animals, it requires some infrastructure, right? Mm. There's usually like a, a, a system of burrows or something yes. like that that they live in. So I think these particular ones live in like reefs, coral, that kind of thing. Okay, so they've just got all sorts of little nooks and crannies in there. Mm -hmm. And the queen shrimp. (laughs) Other species will demonstrate cooperation with goby fish. I've heard of this. Yes. This is adorable. Where they will share burrows. Yeah. (laughs) So the way the trade-off works. The shrimp builds the burrow, and then the goby moves in with the shrimp. And then the goby alerts the shrimp to the presence of predators. By way of tactile signals that the shrimp receives via its antenna. So the shrimp will leave one of its antenna on the goby fish and then the goby will do like a little wiggle or something. <laughs> you know, such that the shrimp is like, oh, predators. Uh, hide. They keep a little hand on their buddy. They got the buddy system. <laughs> yeah. I think my aunt had one in her fish tank. Oh, yeah? I think she had a pistol shrimp in her in her fish tank. That's cool. That had a little buddy, a little goby friend. Mm-hmm. They called him Pistol Pete. <laughs> that's pretty good this is also where i just noted their hunting mechanism in general i thought that was pretty neat yeah um like i mentioned the prey does need to be within a few millimeters of the claw for it to be affected by that cavitation bubble they are going for like small fish other shrimp that kind of thing so luck <laughs> <laughs> maybe so it's also thought that the claw snaps they could also use them for communication I mean, if you've got something that's going to yeah. be blasting sound, why wouldn't you? Which apparently they might be able to tell the difference between a male or a female based on the type of click. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of information to process for something that's happening, you know, half of a millisecond. But... That's true. But I mean, they're little guys, you know, with a lot of arthropods, a lot of times their brains are like working at a different like refresh rate than ours are basically so they can process things that happen in much smaller increments of time than we're used to so i don't know maybe yeah Uh, and then for aesthetics i'm giving a seven out of ten so we're talking about a whole family here sure Uh, so there's lots of variation given that scope but generally they look like small shrimp like kind of lopsided lobsters some of them have interesting colors particularly one scientific name synalpheus Pink Floydy. No way. Yes. <laughs> so of course, named after Pink Floyd. Obviously. <laughs> uh, it has a pink claw. Okay. All right, I see it. <laughs> the, the researchers were all, you know, very big fans of Pink I Floyd. I love it when Oh, there was what was it? Something that was called a you know what? It was one of the pumpkin toadlets. Mm. The scientific name was like something something dark side. <laughs> 
like DC Comics villain? Or you know, it was funny because at first when I saw it, I assumed, which I'm guessing you would also assume, that it was a Star Wars thing, but it was actually a reference to the Dark Side of the Moon, the Pink Floyd album. Okay, yeah, it was a type of pumpkin toadlet called Brachycephalus Dark Side. <laughs> so that's two Pink Floyd scientific names we've come across on this show. <laughs> when you're trying to remember the scientific name, something, something dark side. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, conservation status. They seem to be doing okay. I wasn't going to check every single species. There's over a thousand species in this Yeah, let's not. They're fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. They're good. Oh, the folks that submitted this also mentioned a Pokemon yes. relationship. I was going to hope that you knew about I that. I do. Okay. I do know about it. It <laughs> is the Pokemon Clauncher, which evolves into Clawitzer. Okay. Um, which I believe is a reference to a type of gun called a Howitzer. Yeah. I don't know anything more about that. But um, yeah. they are based on Pistol Shrimp, where Clawitzer has, like you said, one giant claw. Mm-hmm. But the giant claw is like a giant sniper rifle almost yeah 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 um but the way that that works is it shoots a jet of water Mm -hmm. out um from its claw and its claw acts more as like a cannon that pumps water like a super soaker or something yeah yeah. which is cool it's especially in uh, the new pokemon snap there's some interesting interactions with clawitzer yeah so it's it's cool it's a cool pokemon i like it is the first form the one with like little boxing glove claws? No, I think you're one. thinking of something else. Okay. Are you maybe thinking of Crab Rawler? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Clauncher is just like a little baby version of Clawitzer. On TikTok, I post a lot of videos of like explaining the real world like zoology behind Pokemon designs. Mm-hmm. I think Clawitzer was maybe the first one I ever did. Oh. Um, but I'm gonna I, for this episode when this episode comes out, I'll probably refilm it and do a new one because I'm better at making them now. So mm, I'll make a better version of it. Got new information too. Yeah. So this is a really cool. I I, I appreciate a little physics lesson. You've Trojan horsed a physics lesson <laughs> to your animal. That topic of matter phase change is something I think about a lot. How often could you possibly think <laughs> every about time I phase? use the pressure cooker? That's just, true. You know, what, you do a lot me. of you do a lot of cooking, <laughs> and so I imagine that probably comes with having to think of, mm-hmm. you know, the temperatures of things and how temperature is going mm-hmm. to affect, you know, the chemical changes in what you're cooking. So, bonus fun fact: we talked about how you know when when matter is changing its phase, it doesn't change temperature. Yeah. That is how rice cookers work, too. Is it really? Yes. Huh. Because the rice cooker is measuring temperature to uh-huh. know when the rice is done. Okay. That's because when the rice cooks, the water you add is eventually boiling and turning into a gas. Uh-huh. So what it's waiting for is for that temperature to rise above 100 degrees celsius because that tells it all the water has boiled away oh because now that the phase change is over if the temperature is rising that means the state of matter change is done yes oh that's really interesting i didn't know that Mm -hmm. how cool thank you for teaching me that no problem and for teaching everybody listening Thank you, everybody, for listening today. If you liked what you heard, I would love it if you could leave us a nice review on your podcatcher, whatever you're listening to us on. 
If you want to come hang out with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Discord, TikTok, stuff like that. Links will be in the show description, so come check it out. We would like to thank the Maximum Fun Network for having us on with their other amazing shows, like the ones that you heard promos for here earlier. If you want to check those shows out, learn more about the network and how you can support our show and keep us going, go over to MaximumFun.org. And thank you, Louis Zong for our theme music. It is just incredible. It sure is. You want to hear it? Here it it is. is. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.